Hello, this is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Sophia Weber. Um, I don't really know what the best intro for myself is, but um, I'm from Connecticut. I live in Waterbury, um, which is uh, another city about 30 to 40 minutes north of New Haven. Um, it's one of the lesser known cities in, in Connecticut and maybe in the entire Northeast, but uh, we were home to a lot of uh, a lot of new technology during the Industrial Revolution for brass manufacture and clock manufacture. Uh, it's a beautiful place, uh, albeit um, dealing with a lot of uh, poverty here. Um, and I'm an anarchist, and I'm working to fix, fix some things up here. So you sound like you're interested. You're interested in technology. That was one of the first things you mentioned. Yeah, I am interested interested in um, technology and technology history. Um, I'm uh, I'm a chemical engineer. Um, my I, I work for a university in in the department of chemistry and chemical engineering. My big focus uh, at work is on on fixing technology and creating new technology. Um, and working on bringing old machines and tech back to life. That's cool. It sounds kind of steampunk. <laughs> uh, no, I wish it was. That'd be really cool. But uh, I mean, we do use a lot of steam in chemical engineering, like that's kind of a thing. Um, but that's more because of uh, energy efficiencies. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm basically. Uh, a glorified plumber and electronics tech. Well, as an anarchist, plumbers and electronics techs are very important. Like that's what we say, right? Yeah. Like if you um, take out your plumbers and your electricians, you don't have a society. You know what was that? I heard a I heard a really cool um, story or like a thought experiment where um, the world becomes at war. Some something gets bombed. And you get every head of state and like every department into the Pentagon, and um, the electrician turns the lights out, right? And like, who's the most powerful person in the world right then during that war? It's that electrician, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Um. So, an anarchist chemical engineer. How do those things fit together? So actually, there there is some some history with um with with anarchists in engineering and scientists. Science. Uh, I mean, obviously, um, some of the early early anarchists um, were interested in um, what do you call it, like evolutionary biology, and they're kind of study uh, like the history of the human race in in those terms. Um, but I, I think, uh, like, a lot of our focus as engineers, even on the left in, in terms of socialism in general, um, like, our focus is on regaining and reclaiming the means of production for workers and the people with the most access and knowing how to run means of production and how to build new means of production uh, are engineers by and large. And, you know, right now we've been kind of tools of capital for a very long time, and uh, a lot of engineers have been kind of happy to sit in that position because of lofty salaries and things like that. But I think that there's a way to sort of start stepping back from that and seeing ourselves as part of the workforce at large rather than uh, some kind of uh, Frankenstein middle management. 
Right, it's some sort of an elite. Like you think of engineering, I think of sort of an elite group of workers. You know, like there's the business school and the med school and the engineering school. You know, so it's sort of I can see there's a separation there between the classes and that type of work. Yeah. It's it's weird having grown up very lower class and having gone into the engineering background because it's not a typical thing. Um, I definitely had to kind of uh, make some arrangements for myself to get, um, you know, funding for, for education and did a few things that I'm not necessarily proud of to get there, but, uh, you know, you do, you do what you can to uh, get from point A to point B. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, when I was first starting to get into it, um, my goal was really just to, to start making medicines and I hadn't really even thought that much about the, um, the intersection between like my politics and uh, where I was working. But when I started, uh, you know, digging deeper and deeper into chemical engineering specifically, uh, I started seeing that like we really are the people that produce everything. I mean, if you look at an episode of uh, How It's Made, uh, a lot of those processes were developed by chemical engineers, the separation, um, all, all those kinds of processes are us, like we, we make those things happen. And so in that way, I think that we have like a, like a really big piece of leverage to, to change how all that works. Have you heard any interest in the field along those lines? Are you sort of a, a new wave of engineering? Are you kind of plotting a path? So I recently found out um, through somebody that you got me in contact with uh, that there is a journal called the International Journal of Engineering Social Justice Peace. I hope I got that right. Um, and there are engineers that are like starting to look into these things. They're starting to look at like producing like more equitable outcomes with our with our movements. Um, you know, my my group specifically is in creating workers cooperatives. Um, that are going to be in those fields. Um, but I also want to create like um, cooperatives in other fields. I don't think that we can get to the point of um, having like a large manufacturer cooperative without first building a whole metric shit ton of capital. And um, like the best way to do that is um, it's kind of kind of taken out of a playbook from the Spanish Civil War, and they had um, cooperatives that would fund each other and then start to fund new cooperatives and mm -hmm. start to build. You start one cooperative, you have to fund the next one, those two fund the next one, mm -hmm. those three fund the next one, oh, cool. and so on and so forth. Um, so, so in that way, it's kind of always branching off. And um, I, I don't know anybody else that's doing like that specific kind of work right now, but I know that it's been done before and it's not an original idea. I did not know that somebody else had kind of thought of that and uh, my partner was reading a book on um, history of anarchism and kind of kind of fell into that knowledge and um, so I'm really happy to know that um, it's precedented in a way and like can be done because it has been done. Yeah totally that's awesome it's really fun to learn those histories. It sounds like there is a technical aspect and then an organizational aspect because there's the technical engineering aspect of um, the actual products that you're making and then there's the organizational aspect of how like engineering firms or works or co work cooperatives 
would work together. Is that kind of right? How do they work together? Uh-huh. Or, or, yeah. What's that intersection? So um, there's, there's a couple different intersections there. Um, chemical engineers don't really develop products so much as we develop processes. So uh, we're, we're kind of even more uniquely positioned in that way. Uh, like, I mean, obviously the outcome of a process is a product, but like uh, usually what happens is a chemist will um, work on figuring out kind of the formula for what somebody is looking for, whether it's a medicine or a dye or uh, a food product or something like that. Like these chemists will sit around in a room to get these kinds of things done and they'll give it to the engineers and they'll say, okay, scale it up. How do we make, because you know, the, the chemists are working on the scale of a table. Um, the engineer is like, okay, how do I get this from the scale of a table to the scale of you know, 40,000 tons a year? Um, so that's, I, you know, organization is definitely part of our, our training and, and part of what we think about. And then there's also, um, like systems and industrial engineers that do a lot of, uh, work on, on things like, um, logistics and, and on the human organizational aspect, although a lot of those are kind of brutally capitalist at this point. Right. It sounds like chemical engineering is sort of anarchic just in the fact that you're talking about processes instead of outcomes, you know, like, like anarchists are all about process as opposed to more, more Marxist view of like, what's the outcome? You know what I mean? Like the anarchist revolution is how do we get there is how you, what you get. Right. So I think it's maybe not a coincidence that you're interested in both anarchism and chemical engineering as a specific type of engineering. I, I hadn't actually thought about it in that way. Um, but that's definitely uh, that's definitely true. Like I do think that like anarchists are like very concerned with like the process of how we get from point A to point B because um, like like the issues with like state socialism in the past is that they've been focused almost completely on the outcome and they kind of lose it becomes like a very utilitarian thing and forgets that there are like more human concerns along the way. Um, in that, like, getting them done necessarily most efficiently might not be the safest way or, or the way that, that benefits the most amount of people. Right, or the most ethical way, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The way that we do things is the world that we're living in in this moment. You know, like, if you're living in this moment, then what you're doing right now is just as important. You know what I mean? So when you're talking about... So you're talking about like sort of changing the way that the structures of engineering are done through these worker cooperatives, sort of based on the model that you said from the Spanish Civil War, which is a heavily anarcho-syndicalist model, right? I definitely uh, regard myself as a syndicalist. Um, you know, I, I bounced around ideologically through my life, but I think that like, um, like in terms in terms of my life. Um, ethical ideology, uh, I'm a stoic, but I think, and, and kind of an existentialist, but I think that, like, the, the stoic principles brought me from kind of um, a lower point and, and feeling kind of nihilistic into um, seeing that there's, like, a, like a, a hope in these kinds of things and um, seeing, like, syndicalism and seeing that it works. Uh, 
certain places and is something that's put to use all over the world in different ways um, kind of uh, made me like pinpoint focus on that. There are large-scale syndicalist models working right now, actually, in the world that we can look at. Yeah. And um, so it's very exciting to sort of like get new fields into those models. I think a lot of them are sort of, are not in these larger scale, I don't know how you would quantify, I mean, I'm thinking like food systems and small businesses and sort of mutual aid networks seem to have more of a, more climbing on board more with the mutual aid, with the uh, worker cooperative movement when you see how it's played out in our society sort of within the anarchist movement itself and not within necessarily these larger fields like engineering. But I do think that there are cooperative elements to a lot of what big business is doing, just not within, not saying that it's anarchic, right? Um, I know that um, down in Argentina, there's there's people that have uh, taken over factories and, and things like that, and like that's uh, something that's like beautiful. But I I think that it's uh, very different here, and I I think that uh, taking over factories in that way uh, would be a bit more of a challenge for us. And so, like, a lot of the ways that other places are doing the cynicalist model, I mean, you know, here, like, most of the, the, the cynicalist models are people that are cooperative models or whatever you want to put it as. Um, they're people that are running, like, things like places you buy food. Uh, I mean, like, food tends to be the big thing, but, like, production seems to be left out of the equation, and I think that that's, like, kind of the linchpin in the whole system, like, like controlling a restaurant, like it's absolutely beautiful. And like like having worker workers control those things, especially like having some liberation for service workers who tend to be like bottom of the totem pole in terms of oppression. Like they're really like getting fucked over worse than most people. Um, and I was a service worker for a long time, so it's something that I sympathize with a lot. But um, I think like in terms of like mass production, which is just something that you bump into when you have an economy of scale, like it needs to be like approached from from a cooperative model. And I think that like, and, and I know that you have to have engineers that that really like bring that on board and start to start to push and create that system. I think that anarchists and revolutionaries in general sort of have a tendency to glorify past struggles and not necessarily look into or take into account current conditions for what we are fighting. I think engineering, I can see, is one of those fields like that where we're talking about looking back and seeing modes of production seized sort of in this like really dramatic, violent way, um, physically in a space. Like, you know what I mean? As opposed to sort of the idea of like taking the ideas of anarchism and seizing the means of production in not necessarily a flashy way, but just in like taking over those means of production and how things function, um, which isn't as sexy. But I think maybe there's a place for that in taking into account really where we're at and sort of how the world is functioning right now and what it means to be, what the means of production really look like in sort of this like highly capitalist um, place that we're in right now. 
I, I actually like that you use the term sexy there because like uh, like like especially within I, I am part of a mutual aid and defense group that I founded called Waterbury Mutual Aid and Defense Network. Um, simple title kind of explains everything that we're doing. Uh, and um, when we were talking about the kinds of work that we wanted to do, um, I, I had come from a background where I, I was close to a lot of people that were doing more insurrectionary work. And um, I feel like that's like the sexy kind of work that everybody wants to do nowadays. Like everybody wants to go punch Nazis, but nobody really wants to, to build a factory. And I think that like insurrection is definitely part of the puzzle, but I think uh, like winning a revolution based on insurrection these days is physically impossible. Like the, the size and scope of the state are so significantly large and and more uh, potent than they were, especially uh, with the advent of you know um, social networking and things like that. I mean, uh, it's no surprise that the U.S. government tends to map out uh, activist networks and probably knows uh, who we are by name. I can verify for a fact that they know who I am. So um, getting getting caught up in, you know, insurrectionary fervor and, and going, you know, full on Max Turner and throwing a Molotov cocktail through the, through the window of a place just isn't uh, viable at this point, I don't think. Yeah, I, one of my favorite books ever... I have it right here. I just bought a new copy because my old copy is somewhere else and I needed to have it. <laughs> is um, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology by David Graeber. It's just this little book here, but it talks about the different types of revolutions that there are basically two types of huge social change, social revolution that have happened throughout the history. One of which is this violent insurrection, this like I see as very um, communist, Marxist, the idea that you seize everything and you overthrow and you kill the dictators, right? And then there's the other kind, which is sort of creating the world within the shell of the old, where the current system just becomes um, unimportant, just useless as you created a new system underneath. And then, so there's all these, you'll end up with these sort of vestiges of the old system, maybe even some bosses and leaders, but they don't actually really have any power, and they're just basically ignored by everybody. And in that way, a new society comes about. And it's, it's very different. And the second one, he argues, and I agree, is sort of a much more anarchist way of looking at things. That you, you know, sort of a dual power system, but not just talking about power, just talking about entire social structures. You know what I mean? And I feel like we're in this moment right now where government is falling apart and I mean it's being like actively dismantled in this country you know these sort of governmental systems are leaving people without the what they need to survive and so like some people are talking about like oh well this is a moment to sort of go big or go home or this is I think more people are talking about at least in anarchist circles the fact that we need to be creating these new structures for folks right I actually, I've never heard of that book, so I'm like, not now I need to read it uh, ASAP. Fragments uh, and Anthropology, awesome. I'm going to totally turn back to that later. Um, super excited about that. Um, yeah, I think I think like that's part of, a big part of the work. Um, like the other, 
The other thing that we're doing with the mutual aid network is uh, we're setting up air and water testing to uh, kind of look at like inequities in society, especially with just within the city, really, uh, because the city um, is this like post-industrial wasteland. Like I, I feel like I live in the fallout universe most of the time, hmm. um, and um, I mean the the cops and the politicians are like cartoonishly evil here. It's ridiculous, but. Um, I think, like, when people get a picture of the inequalities and then they see a better model, um, like, like if you have, like, hey, you're totally getting fucked over here and this is what we do about it, and they see both of those in action simultaneously, like, that's how you really create, like, a like a new structure, and I think, like, it's, it's almost like shedding skin. Like, I mm-hmm. think um, that the, the old system will be more apt to kind of swap off as people just kind of shun the whole thing. Um, I don't, I don't see uh, electoral politics winning this. I, I guess I, I see some some point to harm reduction there, and I know that there's been people on the um, the libertarian left, uh, like especially um, what do you call it in the um, what is that school of thought. Um, uh, the the kind of uh, system that they're using in Rojava, like um, we've been. Oh, the Democrat, the confederalism, kind of confederalism or the. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confederalists have at times tried to uh, put people into elected positions to kind of dismantle the state that way, and I don't know that I see that as viable here. But like, I think that um, like when people will will see. Um, workers' cooperatives growing as a movement, especially, like, if you have it kind of flying under one banner um, and all these cooperatives supporting each other and, and pursuing pay equalities across the board and, uh, you know, bargaining for health care together, that kind of thing. Like, I don't think that there would be a chance that anyone would be turned off of that. There's really, like, outside of, like, uh, people that are already ultra-rich. Um, there's really, like, nobody with anything to lose there. And there's more and more people with nothing to lose as the systems fall apart more and more. Exactly. Um, I was interested in your project when you were you were about talking about testing water. I remember you, sat, you showed pictures of the water in your area and just how gross it was and this is what people were being expected to drink. What was that all about? Well, um, a water main had burst here and it's been happening in a, in a couple of cities in Connecticut near here. Um, I, I tested my water in the, uh, last week and it seemed uh, all right, like it's recovered from that, but uh, it uh, it ruined water quality for damn near close to a week. Um, and it was, I, I mean, it only affected certain areas of town. And they were basically having municipal workers go around and dump fire hydrants to kind of flush the system uh, as quickly as they can. But I think uh, even past that, um, there was there's two... Um, elementary schools where they found lead in the water very recently mm-hmm. and I think that testing those and testing air quality is, is going to um, show a lot of issues uh, especially air quality right now because there was a there's a company that um, 
that hauls garbage in the area, and they have what they call a transfer station on the other side of town where they, they take garbage and kind of dump it and then have it sent out from there. Um, kind of a logistics nightmare. Um, but basically, they want to um, expand this transfer station and kind of make it this larger this larger thing, um, and they want to, A, I mean, uh, develop some of the, the only undeveloped land left in the city outside of, like, parks that we have specifically not developed. Um, they want to um, put it in one of the poorest neighborhoods in town. Like, the the existing transfer, transfer station is already in, like, one of the poorest neighborhoods, um, but they want to continually increase this, which is obviously going to make the air quality worse if people are bringing more and more garbage. And so uh, actually tonight after I get done here, I'm going to go test the air quality in that area and see what it looks like. I'm hoping to um, test some of the water quality there, but I have to, to kind of make some contacts in that area. I don't know if many people on the south end of the city. So, What do you do when you find out the quality? What's the next step? Um, the next step is making uh, maps of, of the air and water quality and compare it to uh, income and race and things like that and see how, um, I, I mean, obviously, like, it, the air quality and water quality are going to be worse in areas where, where you have concentrations of people of color and concentrations of poor people. Um, the city's pretty well integrated in, like, kind of mixed and it's um, I mean there are there are the schools are a bit not as much but the neighborhoods themselves tend to be like pretty well mixed um, there isn't like large concentrations of like certain kind of people living in one place uh, as compared to another but um, most of the city is really poor there's like very few well-off areas there's one that's um, maybe two miles down the road from me um, but like my, my own neighborhood, I live in the neighborhood that's um, like the most sex work in the city. And so it's, it's I, we're, you know, one of the poorest neighborhoods as well. And I think that uh, even when looking at our air and water quality, we're going to see a difference between us and the, the nicer neighborhood two miles up the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and so getting those maps out and then bringing it to city hall and saying, like, you guys have, like, abjectly failed at uh, any any, you know, lip service you paid to, um, to promoting equity in the city. Um, and it's, un- it's uh, unfortunate because we're, I mean, we're one of those cities where Republicans don't win. And so we've got like an all democratic governance, but the problem ends up being that um, the Democrats that run are um, people with strong business ties or people that kind of embrace nepotism general and like, you know, are just giving jobs to their friends and that kind of thing, kind of exploiting the city's economy to, uh, to get rich off of the uh, increasingly struggling populations here. Hmm. That's one of the hard things is like, we're still fighting those in power to change what they're doing at the same time as we need to be like creating our own systems, but that which currently feel really underdeveloped. So there's lots of these good projects. I'm glad to see these projects like your project starting to work on creating these mutual aid networks where we can take care of each other. I think one of the, um, one of the criticisms that people bring about anarchism is that 
you know, well, how do you take care of these big issues? And you're talking about, like, water pipes, and you talk about, like, roads, who's going to make the roads, like, all of these sorts of things. And what I say to that is, I don't know, but the system we have is not working, <laughs> you know? Like, maybe, like, it, that can, kind of comes back to processes where it's like, we know that the process is broken, and with a broken process, you get broken results. So, like, we have to do better. We have to at least try something. You know, it can be demoralizing to think about, like, well, how do you deal with air quality? That's, like, a huge public issue. So, like, as an anarchist with a vision, like, is taking it to City Hall kind of our only recourse right now? And, like, how do we... I guess this just is like sort of a deeper philosophical question about the anarchist movement in general, you know, like where are we going? How strong are these networks? What do we what do we do next? You know, and you're talking about sort of maybe this is where workers cooperatives tie in, and that that's like a starting point. Uh, actually, um, so um, like one of the things that I mentioned before was workers cooperatives being tied in together and and targeting for things like healthcare. Um, so obviously, like, you're going to have a workers' cooperative running things like hospitals. Like, if, if you take this to its farthest extent, uh, which I think is, you know, obviously the right thing to do. Uh, and so you have to start thinking about, like, okay, well, how do we take care of the communities around the cooperatives? So, A, I think, um, you know, obviously put, uh, having uh, pay equality, but B, like, Having uh, a bargaining system for healthcare, having um, like all of these cooperatives together, paying for healthcare together to keep costs low, um, that kind of thing. Um, I think uh, obviously outside of an insurance kind of idea, like although maybe like a, something similar to a single payer idea, but without like a government intermediary, like everything decided on a direct democratic basis. Um, but I think things like roads, like obviously like the cooperatives that are in the area would have an interest in keeping the roads well paved, in keeping the air quality clean, um, uh, in keeping uh, neighbors uh, and, and people around well fed. And I think once you have a robust enough uh, cooperative economy and have this kind of grow to um, even within just one city, an economy of scale, then you can start saying, okay, well, what can we do um, to provide mutual aid services for, um, you know, homeless people within the city or uh, even even just creating homes or, or refurbishing homes um, in other, like, kind of unlivable areas. Um, so it's, uh, in energy production, things like that, like, you can start to have all the cooperatives start to pay into creating these services together that are not part of like the nonprofit industrial complex, like systems that are actually equitable, um, even, even uh, experimenting with something like a universal basic income for the people that live around the cooperatives. Like if you're like, okay, like we live in the city, but we realize that there's a lot of people that are like totally fucked. I think that there's there's ways for like these cooperative networks to start um, even creating something similar to universal basic income where they provide an income to the people in the community. Um, and like, you know, if, if you're um, shipping products out somewhere, which I imagine that, uh, you know, um, large scale production would do um, using using some of the, the resources that are gained through that to, to feed the community and help the community. Um, 
and, and ultimately like rebuild it, not on a, a tax basis, but really having the cooperatives talk together and say like as a giant union, uh, very similar to like CNC kind of model, um, or even like being all under like uh, industrial workers of the world. Uh, I think that's kind of where I see this going, but um, saying like as a union, like what do we do to help our, our community to like, we can't just be like focused on the workers because there's plenty of people that don't work or there's plenty of people that do, you know, kind of invisible work, like domestic work and things like that. Like, how do we support those people? And I think, like, the best way is to create um, a structure where you just pay those people out equal to the salaries of the workers. I think that brings up an interesting point about unions and conflicts of interest between different union parties. You know, when, when people are talking about, like, working in groups around a single issue or on like a single part of their life, um, then there can be conflicts of interests between what I need and what you need and we need to fight for the thing, right? But you're talking about bringing the perspective out bigger to this entire community because at that point sort of the conflict of interest goes away because it's like if the community is our interest, then we have the same interests in, in the end despite any sort of like smaller or like more specific problems to our own cooperatives is that kind of how that would work yeah i think like it gets to the point where like people even if you know um even if my neighbor doesn't give a shit about the guy that lives on the other side of town my neighbor might give a shit about me or somebody else that lives in the building and i think if you know you've got a bunch of people you've got you know at this point a couple thousand people across the city working in different places like they're going to care about what their community looks like, what it, what the air quality is, what the water quality is, how the roads are, how the schools are, these kinds of things. And so um, I think that they would, you know, be willing to use their bargaining power within the union to, to kind of create these systems. But I know that it's going to be tricky to, to kind of navigate this space and, like, do it in a way that, like, embraces free association. But I think that it's not difficult at all i think that that once you have uh you know a robust kind of cooperative economy like this shouldn't be uh an issue why is the wild cat strike called that i don't know actually um i i think it's interesting because like and uh you know you have like on all like the old iww symbolism you have all these black cats and that was kind of just a symbol for anarchism, especially anarcho-syndicalism. Uh, I've just totally embraced it because uh, I'm also a witch. So like the, the, the comfort that I have <laughs> with, with cats is, is, is perfect. I think it just ties everything together as a neat little bow. Uh, yeah, there's something very anarchist about cats. They kind of just like do their own thing, you know, although um, Actually, anarchists are very community-oriented, though. So our cat's community-oriented. There's something nihil There's something individualist about a cat. <laughs> something egoist about a cat a little bit. <laughs> All our cats get together uh, and read Sterner together. Cats and families seem to, to kind of work well together. But, uh, yeah, stray cats that are kind of on their own and don't have any, like, familiar wasps seem to uh, not, not jive with each other very well. Yeah, I guess maybe that's why it's a wildcat strike as wildcats do their own thing. Like, fuck you, yeah. established corrupt union. We're going to be a wildcat. <laughs> 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 
you mentioned that you're a witch. Let's talk about witchery. So you're, awesome. yeah. So I'm a mystic. You're a witch. That's interesting. Let's talk about it. I'm also a mystic. I think that there's like a huge connection between mysticism and uh, in witchcraft by and large. And like, I'm also a stoic, which is like a, a school of uh, thought that dates back to ancient Greece that uh, A, had a lot of uh, anarchist philosophy in it, but um, was like profoundly pagan. Uh, but um also, uh, a lot of uh, mystic elements to that school, they were very concerned with uh, union with the divine in terms of thought, like in terms of this idea that um, you should uh, kind of love what your faith finds you to, even if it's like a struggle, even if it's difficult, like um, because it's, it's there to kind of shape you into a better person. And like, uh, and I mean, like, I, I see the same strain in like Islam as well, like a lot of uh, Muslims, like, they they see, like, the will of God is really, really important and uh, that it's, um, that it's shaping them to be better and, uh, you know, it's like, um, you really can't make a a sword without, uh, you know, some fire and a hammer. Um, I don't know much about the Stoics. That's really interesting. It sounds, again, like we're talking about process, how important process is. It seems like it's very important to you. The Stoic process, um, there's like a lot of different practices that go in. So like one of the things that I'm really into that's part of that is journaling and like journaling was always part of the process. Like one of the the more like inspirational Stoic texts that a lot of people tend to read um, and that like most people are familiar with with uh, meditations from Marcus Aurelius, which is actually his journals. Um, and uh, it wasn't intended to be published like it was it was these notes to self but they ended up being really really well written and really poignant uh and like kind of well spoken and so um that's actually like what got me into stoicism at first um i was uh practicing buddhism before that and um started moving into stoicism because i really liked uh the imagery and i like the simplicity of the philosophy it was less esoteric than buddhism there wasn't like um, so much to, to grab at and to, to contemplate on. It was like, here you are in your life, be the best person that you can be, and like life is going to throw things at you. Try not to sweat them. Like Try to focus on your own growth. Don't criticize people that often, these kinds of things. And so it has like, it bears a lot of the similarities in Buddhism where it's, where it's about like self, self-regulation and about... Uh, trying to not be overcome with desire in a way that it, it ends up destroying your life. Um, so I I resonate with it so much. I think that it's um, one of the things that that uh, can really bring, bring people closer to themselves, like being like, all right, I know my life sucks right now, but like I have to like power through this. I have to like realize that this is shaping me into a better person but also not make life suck for other people just because I think it'll shape them into a better person. Um, like, I think a big part of, like, the capitalist and, and especially like conservative uh, ideology of the day is that they um, tend to say, oh, well, I had it, you know, this, this particular way back in the 50s, you know, walked up to, uh, walked to school eight miles in the snow, what have you. Uh, and my kids are 
complaining about their pronouns, like, what the hell? Uh, and uh, my my mother was, was very candid about that with me. She was like, I struggled so that you wouldn't have to as much. Uh, and I mean, like, I still struggle. Like, my life is sort of not easy at all, but... Um, like there's a there's an appreciation that I have because she she went through that struggle. Yeah, the idea that struggle is a good thing is always a very nice concept because we all struggle. So if there's a way to like make it be worth something instead of just being shitty, I think that's important. I mean that's kind of a. I like the I like the stoic approach that you're talking about. I like the the Buddhist approach to struggle is interesting. I mean, the, the approach to, the Christian approach to struggle is a little different than that. A little interesting. You know, the idea is like, well, you're struggling for, towards something. is not necessarily like, that's not necessarily in this world. That's for the next world. That's for something bigger than yourself. Right? Although I think that the way that I read Christianity is, um, you're trying to bring this world on earth as it is in heaven. Um, so that the struggle right now is you're struggling to make the world perfect. And that that's just sort of like what you do. And it's not even necessarily for yourself. It's for, because it's just sort of like how you have to be to be a good person. So that sort of has a different thrust to it than the idea that it's like it's for myself. My struggle is for me. You know what I mean? I, uh, I think that, that Jesus really alluded to that idea that, like, you're not really supposed to be struggling uh, towards the, the next life. You know, he said, like, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, and, you know, Leo Tolstoy wrote the, the book by the same name. Uh, but I think that's, uh, A, that's, that's mysticism in a nutshell. Um, but, like, mysticism has, like, a fundamental relation to... Uh, anarchism uh to like like antinomian movements and stuff like that in, in christianity and i think that even uh you know monastic movements um they operate in a very communal way and you know monastics tend, tend towards the uh the more mystical side of the religion the less literal reading of it and the more um internalized reading and i think that like those things are not uh, something that we can pull apart. We can't say that um, they're 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 not connected in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I already disagree with myself because trying to say any one thing about Christianity is impossible <laughs> because it's so huge and so very various. Which is like, what we're talking about mysticism specifically is like a type of ideology within these larger structures. So like you're talking about the the connection between stoicism and mysticism is one I hadn't really thought about. Can you go into that a little bit more? Uh, so uh, a lot of the, if, if you read through Marcus Aurelius' works, um, like his prayers were, he, he said that like your, the only prayers that you should really go for are, you know, very simple ones like, hey, like, could you please make it rain? Like, uh, you know, there's a drought outside, but like most of your prayers should be focused on like aligning yourself with your destiny, so to speak, like saying, like, all right, I want to be better so that I accept the terms of this and understand it better, like praying for wisdom, which, you know, brings you back into the, the Christian fold of Solomon as well. Um, but I think that ultimately, um, like, this, this 
mystic idea is, you know, connecting yourself with with the Godhead more and more and, and, and kind of uh, seeing in this larger, more universal perspective and, like, seeing your role in part of the the greater the greater whole of things and um, being integrated in that and that's pretty much the the fundamental part of the philosophy they say you know um, they say that you should kind of live according to nature but nature doesn't necessarily mean like oh trees and squirrels and the forest and things like that it's it's live according to how humans behave best, live according to how the world function best, like in the ways that would make things um, easier for yourself and other people, um, get rest when you have to, work when you have to, that kind of thing, uh, and really being part of things. Uh, and the thing that drew me to it was that it was a kind of uh, mysticism that really wanted to get close to, to a a godhead or a divine without necessarily divorcing itself from the world like a lot of uh, monastic movements tend to kind of separate and um, kind of be off in their, off in their, um, their own world basically. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, you know, be a part of the political process, be a part of your everyday life, like really get in there and feel things out and get to know people and like learn yourself through people and learn, uh, you know, uh, the nature of the divine through other people because we all share in the divine. And how does that tie into the, your, is that you do a pagan witchcraft? Uh, yeah, so I, I practice um, solitary witchcraft. Um, which is something uh, I did when I was younger and then kind of strayed away from as I got older and um, I had kind of a, an experience back in January. I don't want to get too many details because it's a very TMI, um, but uh, I had this really lovely experience um, uh, of communion with, uh, with the divine and started seeking out the divine feminine itself and um, kind of brought me in touch with um, with witchcraft by and large uh, again after after so many years, and uh, it was great because there was there's other people within my my circle of friends and like a lot of the anarchists in the area that were also starting to think more about witchcraft, and so we started a tiny little coven called Anarchist Spellfinders or Ass. Uh, (laughs) and it's it's been really nice like building that community and talking about things and um you know doing rituals even if we're not necessarily together at the time like sometimes we'll like make sigils and do that kind of thing or we try to like bond with each other but also try to accomplish certain things um and one of our members i won't who is uh, runs one of the more well-known meme pages for leftists on uh, on Facebook and has inserted sigils into his memes. Um, there's a a very real thing there, but I also, I also think that like witchcraft and especially like chaos magic and solitary witchcraft kind of fall back onto uh, capitalism. Like one of one of the things that. Um, 
some of the people that were de- de- behind the development of Chaos Magic, which is a systemless magic. Um, some of the people that were behind that, they were talking about how corporate logos and things like these are really spells or sigils. Like they're made for um, mind control uh, wow. at, at, at their core. And uh, it's like, like branding is so psychological, but like the psychological ingrains itself in us and really becomes physical in a lot of ways. And um, I think that there's something like really insidious about like corporate branding and advertisement and how it's been used to like really, really uh, like control and disturb the population. Huh. I had never really thought about it like that. I think it's a, yeah. something um, interesting talking about having a balance between the individual and the collective because you say you're a solitary you talk about being a doing solitary witchcraft but then you talked right afterwards about having a group of people and you were talking earlier about sort of individualist versus collectivist and like needing to find maybe we need to find a balance and find a love between those two things you know and like how do you be I, I see it sort of often times being a struggle with anarchists as a lot of us are introverts <laughs> so we're a bunch of introverts that have decided that collective living is really important yeah i i am definitely more of an extrovert i mean i definitely need some some time to myself but i tend to be kind of out in the world most of the time and, and tend to thrive when people are around and like do really well connecting with people um i don't get to a lot at work so when i get home i'm always like excited to more but um i uh so with the solitary witchcraft it's it's yeah it's kind of odd because i tend to do rituals alone um and i like it that way although i've done rituals with other people um i have experimented with that a bit um and you know i've got like a, a little altar on one of my windowsills um but also like having like a cousin that, that talks and we talk about our different things. We all have different paths. So like, um, you know, some of the people uh, come from a more like indigenous background and like they're really into like indigenous magic and stuff. Um, and then there's uh, some people that are really into like very traditional pagan witchcraft. And there's some people that are uh, kind of in between. And, you know, one of our, one of our members very influenced by like egoism and like Satanism and so it's, it's kind of this big broad bunch um, and there's some people that were really new to the whole thing like actually the guy that runs the meme page uh, I remember when he first uh, when he first became part of it he had <laughs> sent us a screenshot of asking his wife for permission to join a, uh, a coven <laughs> that's cute um, and it's it's nice to have all those broad perspectives, but also like because we like try to support each other through through these efforts. And um, I've got little trinkets and things. Some of them have given me. Uh, one of them made me a little wand and a little candle stand, and gave me uh, a really beautiful silver coin that I keep on me at most times. Um, and one of my friends who's also a witch that's not in that coven actually, whether it's wearing his necklace before and absolutely destroyed, 
Uh, it's hematite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. Literally, I just ripped that off myself, but it's fine because this is clearly much cheaper metal than I had bargained for, and it's already, like, deteriorating. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy that I took it off. I don't want, like, a giant green ring around my neck. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I remember getting, like, earrings from Claire's, and your ears just, like, turned green. <laughs> I think they're better, yeah. they're better now. So that was, that was a thing. I remember that. Um, I think it makes sense that you, as somebody who is in a coven with all of these very diverse people, and then also, like, does your own personal work, can see a world where workers' cooperatives function properly. You know, where people with diverse ideas and diverse things can still support each other you know what I mean do you think that sort of that like individual experience kind of ties into your larger worldview of what is and isn't possible I think um like our our ability to like be individuals but then integrate ourselves into into unions and things like that is like integral to like a keeping our own senses of identity which I think is totally shattered by the world of capitalism because now identity is very commodified. Um, and even, you know, identity politics is being commodified in a lot of ways uh, that I find kind of dark and disturbing, um, especially with regard to, to things like, uh, like film. Like, I feel like a lot of... Uh, a lot of attempts at, at creating certain kinds of films are like attempts to co-opt uh, like more left-leaning identity politics movements, and that uh, that always concerns me. But um, like, in order to like not commodify our identity, like we have to like kind of connect with ourselves. But like, we also obviously like we live in a civilization. Like we have to function together. Like especially with the economy of scale, knowing that we're capable of supporting each other and, like, building these grandiose structures. Like, you cannot, as a solitary person, build a skyscraper. Like, there are some things that, like, like the magnificence of people create as a group. Uh, like, we really need, need to um, embrace group dynamics to get these things done, but we also have to know that, like, everybody that comes to the table, that's coming to the table, get these projects done comes from different places and like has separate ideas and, and separate dreams and desires and those kinds of things and uh so definitely like being a solitary witch in a coven is like all it's, it's a piece of that we are just about at an hour is there anything else you'd like to talk about um yeah actually um so i guess um for the beginning of the workers' cooperative project, um, I'm going to be pushing a um, a GoFundMe uh, where we're talking. We've, we've been talking about like different kinds of cooperative models that we want to follow, but I think that like one that I think is uh, the most viable is uh, starting uh, an education-related cooperative, um, basically um, group tutoring. But I want to integrate. Uh, science, technology, engineering, art, history, and math uh, all together because they're not, I don't think that they're one, uh, I don't think that they're separate bodies. I think that all of these things happen together, like science, technology, history, all of these things happen simultaneously, like math needs to back up the science, and then science affects history in terms of technology, 
or in terms of discoveries and things that we learn and things that we understand and how we do things and social conventions and those kinds of things. So, like, uh, I'm trying to create a curriculum that focuses on this, but we want to gather enough funds to kind of get this off the ground. Um, I don't think it's going to take a whole metric shit ton of money to get it done. Uh, I think it'll really be like a couple thousand dollars and we can really push this thing off the ground and start start building um, a space, even if it's a space that we're just renting, um, and, and make it so that we can make like a very equitable education space. And we want it to be a very decolonized education space as well. So we want to make sure that, you know, most of the teachers are either people of color and people like people from, from disparate backgrounds, like that way, like students are learning from people like them, but people not like them as well. And like have a chance to relate to, to different people, but also the people like themselves. Cool. I mean, that sounds like a cool project. Yeah, I uh, I hope it gets off the ground. Honestly, that's like one of the things that I want to do with workers' cooperatives forever. And I always said that, like, if I had the space, like, um, no matter what kind of cooperative it was, I try to create this curriculum and integrate it into the process, so that way, like, the community would be involved and like come learn things. And it was like, well, um, like in terms of startup capital, like a tutoring group costs almost nothing to uh to really build but also um it allows us to to really educate and we can do it from like the in every anarchist perspective as well cool that's awesome and um i'm excited about the waterbury mutual aid and solidarity network as well seems like a worthwhile project it's going pretty well yeah, the cooperatives are actually uh, a piece of that. They're actually the, like a piece of that network. Uh, we're trying to use that structure to, to create it. Because we, we don't see it as like part of uh, two different projects. It's really the same thing. Gotcha. Gotcha, cool. Okay, well, thank you so much for um, being on the show. I think it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, stay on the line, and uh, we'll see you next week or in two weeks. All right, Catherine out. For more information about Friendly Anarchism, you can visit my website, www.friendlyanarchism.org, where there are articles, resources on Quakers, radical Christianity, anarchism, and anti-fascism, a link to the store, and more. A big shout out to my patrons, your support means a lot. If you aren't a patron and you'd like to help keep the show going, you can go to www.patreon.com slash friendlyanarchism, and for just $1 a month, get access to patron-only content like unedited versions of the show and outtakes. Friendly Anarchism is part of the Critical Mediations Podcast Network, along with other great leftist podcasts like The Magnificast, Season of the Bitch, Revolutionary Left Radio, and others. I'm also part of Theology Corner, which is a project that explores different facets of Christianity. For more on radical Christianity, you can also check out the Friendly Fire Collective at www.friendlyfirecollective.wordpress.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a good review for me on iTunes. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening and see you next time.